Good morning. And thank you to Olivia and Annalise. That was, that was lovely. You can turn in your Bible to John chapter 13 as we get ready to begin. And I would also like to wish a very happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers here today. Uh, Carrie's back in the booth today helping with the sound and uh, PowerPoint. Um, Carrie picked out that video that we showed a few minutes ago, and I think that's also important to remember on Mother's Day, that today means different things to different people. That for some people, today's an awesome day. And to other people, for a host of reasons... Maybe a strained relationship with a mother. Maybe missing a mother who's no longer with you. Maybe the desire to be a mother that has, to this point, not been fulfilled. Maybe one of a thousand other reasons. And I just want to acknowledge that. um, To say that we, we appreciate that. And the challenges that we go through in a sinful world. And the difficult circumstances that life sometimes gives to us. And uh, on this day, I just want to um, lift up the women in this church and to pray for you. I also want to mention, and Bob said this, by the way, happy birthday, Bob. Bob mentioned to be praying for June. Uh, and I just wanted to mention that again, to please be praying for, for June Kaufman. We sent out a announcement this week that he does have lung cancer and he does have a treatment scheduled for tomorrow um and so just please be praying for him and just as much uh please be praying for ruby um you guys almost everyone in here has known them a lot longer than i have but i know that this is probably harder on ruby than it is on june and so just please uh, keep both of them in your prayers uh as i said we'll be in john chapter 13 this morning verses 31 to 38 When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word and that it points us to your truth and the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for our time in your word today. Lord, I thank you for every person who is here today. That we can be pointed to truth, pointed to the gospel, and encouraged by your word. Lord, I do want to pray for our mothers here today. And there is 
a love that only a mother can give. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for our mothers. Lord, for the mothers that are here, may we appreciate them. Lord, and for the ones who are no longer with us. As we said earlier, may we thank you for them, Lord. And may we come to you today in a spirit of praise to thank you for the blessings that you give to us. Lord, for um, women here today who are not mothers, and maybe that's a desire, maybe that's a source of of pain or sorrow or grieving. Lord, we pray for them as well and for your nearness to them. And as we're commanded in your word, may we mourn with those who mourn. Lord, we pray for this study in your text. And again, we ask that it be pointing us to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Passing the point of no return, no turning back, taking the plunge. There are a number of ways to communicate the idea of an irreversible deed. Burning bridges, oftentimes used to refer to when you leave a job and maybe hurting a relationship to where you can't go back if you want to. Burning boats, similar meaning, sometimes applied to sailing or the military. The idea that you've created a situation where the only option is to go forward, you cannot go back. You can't unring a bell. The French have a phrase, fait accompli, which means already accomplished. And then there's my personal favorite, crossing the Rubicon, which refers to when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River to go into Rome, passing a point of no return. When Judas left the Last Supper, a point of no return had been crossed. And on the night before Jesus died, the wheels were in motion for him to be betrayed, sold out to the Sanhedrin, and brought before the Roman government on trumped-up charges. And with all of that happening, and Jesus knowing what was about to happen, as he sat with then the eleven disciples, he was focused on teaching them about love. And the main idea of our passage today is that Jesus taught a world who killed him how to love. That is the beauty of the gospel. That the world was sinful, so sinful that it killed its own Savior. But it is through the death of our Savior that he died so that we could have life. And so what we'll do is look at our passage today in three parts. A glorified Savior, our call to love each other, and Christ's greater love for us than our love for him. And with that, we'll jump into our passage, beginning in verse 31. A glorified Savior. The passage begins by saying, when he had gone out... The passage begins with the departure of Judas. He has left Jesus and the rest of the disciples. And it is immediately after Judas has left that verse 31 continues. Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. So the apostle John, who wrote the gospel of John, 
ties together Judas moving forward in his plot against Jesus with the glorification of Jesus, which would happen at the cross. Throughout this gospel, Jesus has constantly pointed forward to the cross, pointed forward to his hour, pointed forward to his glory. And now it's happening. With Judas' departure and Jesus' statement, now is the Son of Man glorified? That seems to be the official beginning of Christ's passion in the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking of what is about to happen as if it has already happened. There is certainty. There's no turning back. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's a title that Jesus uses several times to refer to himself in this gospel. But this is the final time that he uses this phrase. And it's an appropriate one. Son of Man originates in Daniel 7, depicting a heavenly vision of a figure in the clouds who is divine but appears in the image of a man. And so as the glorification of Christ begins, he states that this apocalyptic Son of Man figure foretold in the Old Testament is he. Jesus is glorified in the cross, but in this passage, Jesus also points to God being glorified on the cross. Jesus continues to speak of this mutual glorification in verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. God is glorified and he also glorifies Christ on the cross. It's interesting to think of the things that the world glorifies. The world glorifies the beautiful and the famous and the rich. We have accomplishments that we glorify. Great innovators and inventors and entrepreneurs. Sometimes we glorify political figures and influential leaders. We glorify moments like when a team wins a championship in sports or when a rock star leads thousands of people in a stadium or an arena in song. Those are the glorious moments that the world has to offer. But Jesus looks at himself giving up his life on the cross as the moment when he would be glorified. There are several aspects to Christ's glory on the cross. We're not going to cover them all, but just briefly to give a few examples. Jesus is glorified on the cross by living a life where he perfectly revealed God to the world. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In John chapter 17, verse 4, when Jesus is praying, he will again talk of his fidelity to the Father. John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is glorified by God in being obedient to the divine plan and going to the cross. And the cross is the culmination of his perfect life. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, they are mutually glorified. Jesus is glorified at the cross by undoing the curse of sin upon humanity. Romans 5.18. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And Jesus is glorified in the cross by dying so that people can have life and forgiveness in him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And Jesus displays glory on the cross by showing God's love for the world. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For a moment, I digress. If God can take humanity's great act of wickedness and rebellion and killing its own savior, that that same God can take the worst things that happen in our lives and work those things for good. For his ultimate glory, God works all things for good. And on the night before Christ died, the thought that the cross could be the thing which God would use for his ultimate good and blessing for humanity would have seemed impossible. But God can work through the things that seem impossible. At the cross, Jesus takes the ultimate example of humiliation, and it is worked for exaltation. At the cross, Jesus takes an act of great sin and works it for an act of greater grace. At the cross, Jesus takes hatred and shows love. And that leads us to our second point. In the first point, Christ talks of his glorification at the cross. We see the world's hatred of its own Savior in him going to the cross. In the second point, Jesus will tell his disciples to love one another. A call to love one another. Verse 33. He addresses the disciples here as little children. It's undoubtedly a term of endearment that he's using. In that same language here, the Apostle John will pick up and use several times in his book, 1 John. Verse 33 says, Little children, get a little while and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Again, this is a very endearing moment. Jesus is talking to a group of men who had traveled with him for three years. They had spent three years with the Lord of love. They had seen his glorious signs. They had seen him face opposition and turmoil and they had seen him live a life absolutely righteously and sinlessly he had been their friend their teacher he had taught them how to truly live 
And here he's telling them that he must go, and where he's going, they cannot come. Twice in this gospel so far, once in chapter 7 and once in chapter 8, Jesus is facing opposition with Jewish groups. And he tells them that they will seek him, but not find him. And he picks up that same language in this verse, 1333. But here the tone is more optimistic. Because in chapters 7 and 8, it serves more as a warning to come to him before it's too late. But here with his disciples, the meaning is different. That he must leave. First, in going to the cross. But after his resurrection, even then his time will be short, 40 days, before he'll leave them to go to the Father. And so Jesus says, as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you. It's also interesting to note that the disciples are Jewish. But in pointing to the command that he is about to give to them, He's pointing to a newer and greater identity that they will have in Christ. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The disciples are to be a new community united in Christ. And that's true for the church as well, that we are a community united in Christ. And so before Jesus departs, he says, a new commandment I give to you. Now, the command to love is not new. It's in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That command gets picked up elsewhere during Jesus' ministry and in the Gospels, such as in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. So how is this a new command? It's a new commandment in the sense that the grounding for the command is new. Yes, there was a command to love your neighbor as yourself in the Old Testament, as part of the Old Covenant. But Jesus is reconstituting that commandment for his New Covenant community. It's also a new command in the reason why we love one another. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So in the Old Testament, we're called to love as we love ourselves, to treat others as we want to be treated. But Jesus is calling us to an even higher form of love. He's calling us to love as he loves. And his glorification on the cross shows just how high of a standard that love is. That we are to have a gospel love for one another. Jesus doesn't say a new suggestion I give to you, a new virtue I give to you, a new idea that I give to you, but a new commandment that I give to you. That you cannot love God without loving people. And a sincere love for the Lord is meant to overflow into a love for people. 
as I mentioned a moment ago, the Apostle John, who obviously wrote the book of 1 John, along with two other letters. But 1 John largely revolves around love within the Christian community. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. That is our command as believers in the gospel and as a church, to love one another well. Again, it's a high standard. But it is meant to be the distinguishing mark of the Christian community. Jesus told the disciples back in our passage in John 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You want to show people that you love God? Then you need to love his people. And may we be a church where we're committed to loving one another. 1 John 4, verse 20 and 21 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Not all people are equally lovable. There can be disagreements. There can be wounds. So what does it look like to love one another? And the times when it's difficult, we remember that we have a Savior who gave his life so that we can have life in him. Love is a complicated idea in our society. There's a well-known book, I have no doubt some of you have read it, by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. And what he's doing in that book is he's looking at In the Greek, there's four different words for love. And in the four loves, he's basically exploring the meaning of of each of those terms for love. One of them refers to a romantic love. One of them refers to a love that's more about friendship, to give a couple examples. In some ways, I think that's part of our problem in English. That we don't have enough of of a vocabulary to describe love. We use the word love for everything. We use the word love to refer to how we feel about God, how we feel about our spouses, how we feel about our children. And we use the same word for how we feel about chocolate and our favorite sports team and our favorite restaurant. We use love to describe things that we love And we also use love to describe things that we like or things that we enjoy. What is love? I think to answer that question, we have to look at the love that Christ displayed in his ministry. Again, by no means an exhaustive list, but just a few thoughts. Love accepts. Love does not affirm sin. Jesus never, ever affirms sin in the Gospels. He never downplays sin and says, that's okay, that doesn't matter. But he always accepts. He's always gracious. Love sacrifices. Jesus will say in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
And Jesus sacrificed his life. Now, it's very rare in our society that that type of love is required of us. But there are still other ways we can make sacrifices. Our time, our talent, and our skills, and our treasure. Love is active. Love is in action. Jesus is constantly serving people, ministering to people. The word love is a verb in the way that he's commanding us to love. He's calling us to action. Love forgives. Certainly, again, Jesus displays the ultimate forgiveness on the cross. And because of that forgiveness, we are called to be gracious and forgiving to one another. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, I've only been here for a year and a half. This church has been here for 50 years. Some of you might have a lot of history with other people in this room. And so with that, I would just like to take the opportunity that it might be something that I don't even know about. But if there's any bitterness or anger with another brother or sister in this church that we are called to forgive. The point of that is not that whatever sins people commit are insignificant. But nevertheless, we are called to forgive. Forgiveness comes at a cost. We see that on the cross. And the cost that Jesus paid to forgive us. And when we do forgive, and we've talked about this before, that we too pay a price to forgive. Part three. Christ's love. Christ displays a greater love for us than our love for him. Jesus has given this incredibly important commandment to his disciples that they are to love one another. And in fact, that that command communicates to the rest of the world that they truly are his disciples. And Peter speaks up. As so often happens in the Gospels, Peter's the first one to speak. After Jesus has said, love one another, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Peter may or may not have even heard Jesus just give the command to love. All that he's focused on is what Jesus said just prior to that about how he was going to leave them. Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter cannot follow Jesus because Jesus is going to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. And that is not a mission on which anyone else can join him. But Jesus does respond to Peter by giving him a prophetic statement that Peter probably doesn't even realize at the time. Jesus says Peter cannot follow him now. But you will follow afterward. Jesus is foretelling that Peter, too, one day will be martyred. Obviously, Peter's death does not atone for sins. But Peter, along with most of the disciples, would ultimately give his life for the gospel. In John's gospel, after Jesus died and rose, he commissioned Peter to be a leader in the early church. But he also tells Peter in John chapter 21, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, 
You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. But it's not yet that time for Peter to give up his life for Jesus. And Peter is not yet ready to make that commitment. But Peter doesn't want to hear it. Verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter says he will lay down his life for Jesus. It's easy to say the things that we'll do when we're not really in a life and death situation. All you have to do is talk to a group of guys. You get lots of big talk when people don't actually have to follow through with it. Peter says he will lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus has said that that's true, that one day he will, but not this day. And Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. And he knows that Peter is about to fail him. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I listened to a sermon this week. Again, Peter oftentimes is the first one of the disciples to speak up. And a pastor observed that chapters 14 through 17, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And we don't hear a word from Peter in those four chapters. Almost like Jesus sort of quiets him down for a few minutes. I think part of Peter's problem is that he's pledging loyalty to Jesus But he's trying to do that in his own strength and in his own capacity. In John 18, Jesus is arrested. And we see Peter quickly there to intervene. He takes a sword and cuts off the ear of a man named Malchus. Jesus rebukes Peter for this. But after Jesus is arrested, Peter is spotted by a young girl. And she asks him if he's one of the disciples. And seeing Jesus arrested, Peter gets cold feet. He denies it. And again. And again. But in John 13, those events are still a few hours away. And it's just Jesus and his 11 disciples. It's ironic. Jesus has commanded the disciples to love each other as he loved them knowing that he was about to lay down his life for them. Peter speaks up about being loyal to Christ to the point of death, when he will ultimately deny Christ. Jesus has called the disciples to love each other as he loves them. Peter exposes the imperfection of the disciples' love for Jesus. Again, it's a high standard. And we fail. We don't love as Christ loved us. Because Christ loves us with a perfect love. And we don't love Jesus as much as he loves us. Because he loves us with a perfect love. Now, there's obviously no way to know what was truly in the heart of Peter when he made this pledge. But at the Last Supper, in that moment, 
I believe that Peter truly believed what he was saying. That in that moment he was sincere. But it was also a moment of pride. Again, we have a Savior who knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows who we truly are. He knows our sins. He knows our failures. He knows our fears. He knows our darknesses of our own hearts and lives. He knows our areas of pride. And he loves us anyway. And so instead of beating our chest and talking about how great we are at loving each other, how great we are at loving the Lord, instead we should look to Christ's example and learn from him. And we should also know that we are not meant to love on our own strength. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that produces life in the genuine believer. And the first of those fruits is love. That God equips us as his people to love. We don't love him perfectly, but he loves us perfectly. And the good news of the gospel is that we are not saved by the intensity of our love for Christ, but based on the Forgiveness of a loving Savior who loves us and is gracious. And that Christ's grace is stronger than our love. But we are called to love the Savior who gives us life and who forgives us of our sins. And we are called to love our neighbors. And we are called to love one another. To love one another as Christ loved us. Like Peter at the Last Supper, standing up and proclaiming that he would die for Jesus. With love, it can be very easy to talk about love. But actually showing love, being loving, loving people who are hard to love can be difficult. And while there is grace when we struggle... Let us never be nonchalant in our attitude about love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, but it is also a commandment of Christ. And more than anything else, it's what shows the world that we love Christ. And so for this church, to love one another needs to look like serving one another. It needs to look like forgiving one another. A church of people who know that God loved us first. And knowing the love that he has for us. And walking with God and through his power, being strengthened to do his work and being his hands and feet as the church. In the community and in the world. And to show love to a world that would so often rather hate. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, one, for loving us, and two, for showing us what love looks like. Lord, may we know that that's what we're called to. Lord, may we do that with joy. Lord, may we serve people. 
want the best for people. Be gracious and kind. Lord, I pray for us this week that we would go out and serve you and bring you honor and glory through being loving people. Again, to our brothers and sisters in the church, to our families. Lord, may we reflect that in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.